Am I on? I'm on now. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. And uh, I, I believe the worship night is next Thursday. Um, yeah, not, not this one. This one, if you come, no one's going to be here. We're going to be home with our family, with our friends, enjoying a nice, hopefully, a Thanksgiving meal. And uh, yeah, infamous. <laughs> the jury is still out, I guess. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but I do fry my turkey annually, and hopefully it'll come out well for those who join us. It really is good to be with you this morning. Um, so thankful. Uh, so thankful for so much. And uh, I'm so thankful that God has brought you here today to encounter Christ. And if this is your first time at Living Way, we are delighted that you're here. And we hope and we pray, as we have been praying, that you would encounter the living Christ today and be changed by his love and grace. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a break from our series on Kingdom Come, uh, which is a study of the last days so that we can focus our hearts on the subject of gratitude and thanksgiving. And if you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, Exodus 15, and Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus chapter 15. Normally, I have you stand for the reading of God's word, but I won't have you do that this morning. Instead, I will ask you to stand as we go over our values as a church. So if we can all stand together. I'm going to read the value, and we will read the statement together as one. A gospel-centered life. The gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. A gospel-revealing community. By our love that transcends all natural bonds, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of scripture without compromise, for all the ground is sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment, interdependence, and affection, a missional community. We join God's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. You noticed our pastor Ray is not here this morning along with Ruth, and they are under the weather. And so if you can keep them in prayer, that God would bring a full and speedy recovery to them. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. God, truly, thank you for this day. Thank you, God, for this time that you have given us. That, God, that we get to gather with your people and to study your word, to hear your word. For we know, God, that there are brothers and sisters around the world who do not have this blessing, who do not have the privilege that we have been afforded. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us even now of just how much we have been given, God. How gracious you have been to us. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that as we now look into your word, God, that you would, God, that you would work in our hearts. 
God, that you would show us the parts of our lives, God, that need to be, God, redeemed and restored. The parts that need to be surrendered to you. The parts, God, that need to be reminded of your grace and your goodness to us. God, I thank you for every person, every man, woman, and child in this room. And Spirit of God, I pray that you would meet us, that you would meet us, that you would meet us right where we are. God, that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you would show us Christ and the grace we have been given in him. So Father, we entrust this time, we entrust our time and your word into your hands. God, be honored in our midst. Be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start by giving you the context of our passage so that we understand what's taking place here. God has delivered his people from slavery. The Israelites have been rescued from the tyranny of Pharaoh. They were once slaves who didn't have a prayer. They didn't have a hope in the world. Their life consisted of doing whatever Pharaoh wanted them to do from sunup to sundown. Day after day after day until they died. It was just a miserable existence. So what they wanted more than anything was to be free. Freedom from oppression, freedom from brutality, freedom to to live as free people. To do what they wanted to do and worship as they wanted to worship in their own land. That was their hope and dream. And the people said to themselves, if we could only be free, if only we were free, then we'd be grateful forever. Now imagine... After a lifetime of oppression, your dreams come true. You are finally free. God has heard the cries of his people, and through his servant Moses, he delivers them. And in chapter 14, we see the dramatic conclusion of God's deliverance as he leads his people through the Red Sea as if on dry ground, and the Egyptians who are hot on their tails are struck down as the sea closes in on them. And we read in verse 30 of chapter 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And now in chapter 15, the children of Israel erupt in praise to God for what he has done. And this outpouring of grateful worship occupies most of the chapter as the people start singing in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Jump down to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? 
doing wonders, and it continues all the way to verse 18 where they sing, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The people just pour out praise. I mean, how could you not, right? Think about it. You witnessed the 10 plagues. You lived through Passover where death passes over every house that has the blood of the unblemished lamb on its doorpost. And you just saw God split the sea in half, allowing you to walk right through it. You experience stuff like that, it changes you, does it not? It has to. It's got to surely, surely this heart of praise and thanksgiving has got to stay. It's got to continue. It's got to remain, right? Fast forward three days. Three old days. 72 long hours have passed since the Red Sea experience. And look what takes place in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people, what? Grumbled. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink Hey, Moses, what do you expect us to drink out here? We can't drink this water. It's too bitter. Hey, we're going to die of thirst if you don't do something. So three days after their miraculous deliverance, the people grumble. And yet God graciously provides. He makes the bitter water free for them to drink. Look at verse 25. And he cried, me, Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So the people now have been delivered from slavery. Their enemy has been destroyed, and they are given sweet water to drink. Now surely they'll be grateful, right? Look at chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You have got to be kidding me. This is crazy. They've raised complaining to a whole new art form. And what are they grumbling about now? What did they say to Moses? They say, what kind of deal is this? Why did you bring us out here, Moses? Did you bring us out here just to starve us to death? At least back in Egypt where we were mercilessly oppressed, we ate what we wanted. Oh, we remember there was a chicken in every pot. We had breadsticks, endless breadsticks, Moses. Oh, man, if we, if we could just have some meat. If we just, 
But if we could just have put our hands on some bread, then we'd be grateful forever. Jump down to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This bread is called manna. And you know why it's called manna? Manna was a Hebrew word for, what is it? That's really what it means. Manna means, what is it? So God graciously provides bread from heaven, and it's amazing food. We're told down in verse 31 that it it tastes like wafers made with honey. Doesn't that sound good? Honey wafers. So God provides this amazing bread from heaven. Okay, so now the people have freedom. They're given sweet water to drink. They have manna in the morning. They have meat in the evening. Now surely they'll stop grumbling and start being grateful, right? Wrong. Listen to what we're told in Numbers chapter 11, which is talking about the same time period. The people of Israel wept again and said... We remember the fish. Oh, you got to be kidding me. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. And the cucumbers and the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, the halitosis. No, that's not really in there. And then they say, but our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. In other words, we're tired of manna. Oh, Moses, we're sick of manna. If I see another piece of manna, I'm going to barf. Back in Egypt, there they go again. Back in Egypt, where we were mercilessly oppressed, brutally oppressed. Oh, we had fish. We had fish for free, not just fish. We had melons, we had cucumbers, we had onions, we had garlic, we had the whole nine. And they just continued to grumble. So what does Moses do? Later in the chapter, he says to God, kill me, (laughs) please. For reals, you can read it for yourself. God, he says, God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? Did I give birth to these people? No, I didn't. Where am I going to get fish, God? Where am I going to get all the stuff that these people are now demanding? God, please kill me. Do you see what's happening here? The people's grumbling has got Moses grumbling now. And that's the thing about a grumbling, complaining spirit. It's contagious. Would you agree with that? It's super contagious, man. It spreads like a virus. You ever been around a person who's constantly complaining about everything? Just keep looking straight ahead. (laughs) But when you're around a chronic complainer, it affects you, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it does. And when you have one person who's grumbling, who's constantly grumbling, pretty soon you'll have two. The two then doubles into four, then eight, then 16, and it just grows. That's just the nature of the beast, and it's one of the most toxic things in the world. And that's what we see here with the Israelites. 
Their grumbling spirit has infected their leader, and now they're all grumbling. They're all complaining. They all want to die. So what does God do? He grants their wish. If you read on in the chapter, a bunch of them end up dying as the anger of the Lord burns against them. After all that God had done for them, after all that he has provided, all they do is grumble and complain, and God says, enough. That's enough. And he sends a plague, and he wipes them out. He destroys the grumblers. You think God takes this seriously? You think grumbling is a serious offense to God? Let me show you just how seriously God takes this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is reviewing the lessons that we we ought to have learned from guess who? The children of Israel in the wilderness. And this is what he says starting in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul here lists four evils, four things that the Israelites committed in the wilderness that led God to judging his people. The first is idolatry, and that's serious stuff, right? To have something that's not God in the place of God that we worship as God is a serious offense to God. The second is sexual immorality, and that's serious stuff too. Sex was designed by God to be an expression of covenant to love in marriage and to engage in it. Outside of that is a serious offense to God and his purposes for sex. The third is testing the Lord. What does it mean to test the Lord? How did the Israelites test God? Here's how. By saying, is he with us or not? Does he care for us? Or not. Because if he did, we'd have water to drink. If God loved us, then we would have food. Then we would have all these things that we want. You see, whenever we put, or whenever we tell God to prove himself, whenever we give God an ultimatum, do this or else. God, if you really cared, if you really loved me, then you would do this for me. Whenever we put God to the test, the Bible tells us that we are seriously sinning against God. And what's the fourth evil that Paul lists here? Grumbling. An ungrateful, complaining spirit. I'm guessing most of us wouldn't put grumbling in the same category as the first three. Idolatry, sexual immorality, Testing the Lord, that's serious stuff. But grumbling, really? Come on. It's not that bad. 
And yet the Bible says it is. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that it was man's thanklessness. It was his ingratitude that began the downward spiral of humanity. He puts it like this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about, known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he had made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What is Paul saying here? He says it's clear from creation that there is a glorious creator. He says, you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, you look at the mountains and the sea and all that inhabit them. You look at all those things and you realize that there's an infinitely glorious God. You know that there's a God who made all these things, including me. Creation tells me that there's a creator and I am his creature. And when I acknowledge that, I have to admit that everything I have is from him. I have to admit that the creator, it's a creator who gives life and breath and everything. And everything I have is a gift. Everything I have is an expression of his goodness toward me. And therefore, I must give thanks to him. But what sinful man has done is suppress this truth. He doesn't want to acknowledge that from him and through him and to him are all things. No, he suppresses that with ingratitude. So what did God do? Paul says God gave him over. He gave him over to a debased mind, and that's what led to all kinds of evil and wickedness and ungodliness, which he lists in the rest of the chapter. But don't miss the point here. Futile thinking and foolish hearts stem from ingratitude. They stem from ingratitude, from not honoring God for what he has done. John Piper puts it like this. At the root of all ingratitude is the love of one's own greatness. For genuine gratitude admits that we are beneficiaries of an unearned gift. We are cripples leaning on the cross-shaped crutch of Christ. We are paralytics living minute by minute in the iron lung of God's mercy. We are children asleep in heaven's stroller. But natural man hates to think of himself in these ways. Unworthy beneficiary, crippled, paralytic child. Therefore, he will never feel any genuine gratitude to the true and living God. What Paul and Piper are both saying is that sinful man is naturally entitled. Sinful man is naturally entitled. We believe our gifts rightfully belong to us. And this is why, like the nation of Israel in the wilderness, 
This is why we have turned into a nation of grumblers. In fact, author Robert Hughes wrote a book about it called The Culture of Complaint. And the book is all about how we here in America, we have turned into a nation of complainers. And how despite the fact that we have never had so much in the history of the world, we have never been more unsatisfied, more unhappy, more unfulfilled. Why? Because we, more than any other society in the history of humanity, live with a sense of entitlement. That is, we see it as our God-given right as Americans to have all of our wishes fulfilled and all of our desires met. And if they're not, somebody's not doing their job. Somebody's messing up. And so I'm going to complain. I'm going to cry. I'm going to gripe until I get what I want. And this is what has led to the proliferation of lawsuits, right? We are a sue-happy nation if there ever was one. The San Francisco Giants were sued several years ago for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only. I'm not making this up. A psychology professor was sued for sexual harassment because of the presence of mistletoe at a Christmas party. A psychic was awarded $986,000, almost a million bucks, when a doctor's CAT scan impaired her psychic abilities. Now, you have to think about this one, right? If she really was psychic, shouldn't she have known not to go to that doctor in the first place? You guys hear about what happened with uh, Megan Rapinoe last week? Megan Rapinoe, for those of you that aren't familiar, is a soccer player. And she's kind of a polarizing figure. But she played in her final match last Saturday. Well, six minutes into the match, into the game, she tears her Achilles. And she is forced to leave the game. But it's what she said after the match that garnered a lot of attention. This is what she said. I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God like, this is proof that there isn't. This is blanked up. This is just blanked up. I heard that and I thought to myself, this is a classic case of entitlement. Now, it stinks that she got hurt in her last match. That's a bummer. But to say that her injury was proof that there is no God is on a whole nother level. Because according to her logic, if there was a God, then he would have made sure that she went out with a bang. Scoring the winning goal with everyone screaming her name with their teammates, carrying her off the field on their shoulders. That's what would have happened if there was a God. She was owed that. God owed her that. But here's the thing about entitlement. It makes it impossible for you to be grateful. Why? Because if I feel that I'm owed something, then why in the world would I be thankful for it? Right? If I go over to Subway and fork over 60 bucks for sandwiches, which is how much I paid the last time I went there for a family of six, I could not believe it. 60 bucks for five sandwiches. I was like, are you kidding me? 60 bucks. Inflation is nuts. But when they hand over the food to me, 
I'm not going to say to that person, no way. No, come on. No, you're for reals? These sandwiches are mine? They're, you're, you're giving them to me? No way. No. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm overwhelmed. I'm not going to do that. I'll thank you for making the sandwiches, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I paid for them. I paid 60 bucks for them. Therefore, I'm owed it. This is why the more I think I'm entitled to something, the less I'm going to be grateful for it. And the bigger the sense of entitlement, the smaller the sense of gratitude. And this is just how it goes. And guys, this is why, again, we as a society keep getting more and more and more, and yet we are less and less and less grateful. Let me pause here for a moment and address the parents in the room. Mom, Dad, please don't foster this in your children. Please don't raise an entitled child. Please. The worst thing you can do for your child is to raise him or her to think that they are deserving of all that life has to offer. The worst thing you can do for your child is to give him or her everything they want. Everything they ask for. Because that is precisely how you will raise an entitled child. Who in turn will grow up to be an entitled adult. Who believes that everything rightfully belongs to them. Instead, mom, dad. Raise your child to know that they are owed nothing. Raise them with the understanding that they are owed nothing. But everything, everything they have, everything they have, life and breath and everything is from God. Because the God who made them is good and gracious and merciful and kind. Mom, dad, raise your child and instill that in your child. And that's what gratitude is. It's the perception of the good. It's the response of a heart to the grace that one is given. If grumbling is a response of a heart that fails to see the goodness of God, then gratitude is a response of a heart that sees just how good God has been. You see, gratitude is a byproduct of a certain way of seeing. Let me say that again. Gratitude is a byproduct of a certain way of seeing life, a certain worldview. This is why gratitude isn't something you just muster up. You can't make yourself thankful. You can't will yourself to be thankful. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. You can't manufacture it. Why? Because it's a response. It's a response, it's a byproduct of a certain way of seeing, and it always involves seeing three things. And all three of these things come from the old Latin word bene, which means good. But gratitude always involves seeing three benes. The first is benefit. In order for me to be grateful, I have to receive a gift and perceive it as good. 
that the thing that I've been given is good for me, that it's a benefit to me. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about this. For example, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals you of all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. David says, don't forget all the benefits of God, all that he has given you, all that God has bestowed you in grace, has bestowed you upon in grace. David says, remember, remember all the ways the Lord has demonstrated his goodness to you. And that's the first thing. See the benefit. The second is benefactor. Benefactor. To be grateful, you must believe not just that good is coming your way, but that they're not coming at random or by chance. No, they're coming from somebody. So we're not just thankful for something, we are thankful to someone. Did you know that the Bible never speaks of thankfulness in general? No, it always points to a person. Cornelius Plantingo says, It must be an odd feeling to be thankful to nobody in particular. We see this happening on every Thanksgiving day. Everyone seems to be thankful in general. It's very strange. It's a little like being married in general. But for the Christian, we recognize that we have a benefactor. That there is one who does good. That every good thing in our lives, every benefit comes from him. James puts it like this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James says, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Every good thing you have in your life has a source, and that source is God. You have what you have because of him. Every good thing you have in your life is because of him, because your Father in heaven has given them to you. And notice how James describes him. It's not just that God doesn't vary. There's not even a shadow of it. Not even a hint. And what James is saying is that since every good thing you have comes from God, you can know. You can know for certain that only good will come from him in the future. Why? Because his character never changes. Not even in the slightest degree. So gratitude involves seeing the benefit, the benefactor. And the third thing, which is the beneficiary. The beneficiary, in order to be grateful, you recognize that there is one who receives the good. And guess who that is? That's you. That's you. You are the beneficiary of God's goodness. You are the one that's on the receiving end of a God who has your best interests at all. 
And you realize that God has given you much, that God has been so gracious. He has been so good. He has been so faithful to you. He has given you so much, not because of merit, not because you earned it, and certainly not because you deserved it. Never forget, never forget that when it comes to our standing before God, the word deserve doesn't even apply. And thank God for that. Thank God that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Amen? Because there's only one thing, there's only one thing that you and I deserve from God, and that's judgment and wrath. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work in the, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul says it's all grace. It's all grace. Make no mistake, you are a product of grace. Nothing more, nothing less. Everything you have, everything, every good and perfect thing you have in your life, everything you are is because of grace. And the greatest gift, the greatest benefit of all, salvation is because of grace. It's all because of grace. And you that are saved, you know this. You know this. You know how sinful you are. You know what goes on in here and in here. You know the evil that you've done and the evil that you're capable of. And if people like us are saved, it's only because God in his mercy made us alive together with Christ. Some of you are, you're at a place in your life where you are wondering if God really is good. Some of you right now are questioning his love for you. Oh, Christian, let the reality of his mercy put those things to rest. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead. You were dead. You were by nature a child of wrath. You had the wrath of God coming for you. You were depraved, guilty, condemned, sentenced to an eternity in hell. But God, but God in his mercy called your name. He said, Jason, you're mine. Chris, you're mine. Marcelo, you're mine. Ansel, you're mine. Grace, you're mine. Tom, Jen, you're mine. Nick, you're mine. 
John, you're mine. Peter, you're mine. God said, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And you did nothing to contribute to it. You did absolutely nothing. It was all the work of his unconditional grace. God set his affections on you. God set his affections for you. No, for no, for no other reason than that. He chose to set his affections on you. Oh, what gratitude this should compel in us. Oh, what thankfulness. What thankfulness this should produce in our hearts. That God chose you. He chose me. Why, I have no idea. Why did God choose me? I have no idea. But I'm so thankful that he did. That he saved a wretch like me and made me a son. Charles Spurgeon said, if you must have a little list of what God has given you, Ponder the following. He has given you a name and a place among his people. He has given you rights and the nature of his sons. He has given you complete forgiveness of all your sins, and you have it now. He has given you a robe of righteousness, which you are wearing right now. He has given you a superlative love in Christ Jesus. He has given you access to him and acceptance at the mercy seat. He has given you this world and the world to come. He has given you all that he has as God. He has given you his own son. And how shall he now refuse you anything? All he has given you as only God can give you. Oh, he most certainly has. Guys, is it any wonder why God takes grumbling so seriously? Why it grieves the heart of our God to know, to see all that God has done, all that He has given. The fact that He made Christ who knew no sin to be sinful so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not to mention the fact that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In other words, everything that God could give you, he has already given you in Christ. To know all of that, to know all of that and to still live a life characterized by grumbling and complaining, it tells us something. And what it tells me is that I've lost touch with reality. I'm out of touch with reality. You see, grumbling is a gauge of the human soul. It gauges our understanding of grace. Better yet, it tells us that we're not seeing it. That we have lost sight. We've lost sight of the grace that we have been given by God. And this is what we see with the children of Israel, right? They they just, they lost sight of all that God had done for them. All that he had given them. All that he has provided. And this is what I see in me. You know, it's easy for me to sit in judgment of the Israelites. You read this stuff and you're like, you got to be kidding me. Like for reals? Three days, a few weeks, and you completely forget all that God had done, all the ways he has provided and delivered you all you you just forget all of it and just grumbling it's easy for me to sit in judgment of the Israelites 
But truth is, that same ungrateful, grumbling spirit resides in me. Because God has done so much for me. He has given me so much. He has done far greater things for me in Christ than he did for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and yet I grumble. I complain all the time. I don't know about you, but grumbling, complaining comes real natural to me. I groan a lot quicker than I give thanks. I do. I ask God why a lot more than I tell him thank you. But I don't want to be like that. I don't want to stay like that. And I'm guessing you don't either if you're anything like me. So let me close by giving you a few key ways to cultivate a grateful heart. And these are from John Orberg. But here are some key ways to cultivate a grateful heart because, again, you you don't just flip a switch and become thankful. It doesn't work like that. You have to train yourself. Just like anything else in life that's worthwhile, you've got to train your heart. You've got to train your heart. You've got to cultivate it to be thankful. And the first is this. Learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. Learn to be thankful for imperfect gifts. Why is this important? It's important because in this world, apart from God and his salvation, that's the only kind you'll ever get. If you are married and you are here with your spouse, you are sitting next to an imperfect gift. You're like, oh, you don't have to tell me that. I know. You can look at that gift right now if you want to. You are looking at an imperfect gift. But guess what? So are you. So don't be too smug. Some of you have children. And we know what the Bible says about children, that they are a gift from his hand. But they are imperfect gifts, are they not? They are. Your body is a gift. Your body is a gift. Let me see a show of hands on this one. How many of you have an imperfect gift? Raise your hand. Okay, those of you that didn't raise your hand, we're going to have a meeting here right after service so that you can meet each other and have perfect kids, okay? (laughs) So often in life, so often, we go through life thinking if only, right? If only I were skinnier, taller, prettier. If only my husband was more helpful, if only my wife was more supportive, if only my kids were more obedient, if only my parents, if only, if if only, if only, if only. But you know, as flawed as it may be, I've got to learn to be thankful for my body. As dysfunctional and unhealthy as it may be at times, I must learn to be thankful for my family. As imperfect as it may be, I must learn to be thankful for my church. Why? Why should I? Because if I wait for those things to be perfect, then I will never be thankful. For example, if you wait for your children to behave perfectly before you praise them, then you won't ever celebrate them at all. Guys, here's what I know. Here's what I know. When we focus on the flaw of a gift, we quench the joy of the giver. 
When we focus on the flaw of a gift, we quench the joy of the giver. You know, my youngest, Addie, loves to draw. And she is always drawing things for Jean and me. And I want to show you a couple of uh, things that she drew for me. Okay, if we could put the first image up. There's Addie, and there's Jesus, and there's Daddy. There's the three of us. I I think we're walking somewhere. We're standing. But it's funny, whenever she... Draws Jesus, there's that red sash. <laughs> I don't know where she got it, but there's always a red sash. And so we know, okay, that's Jesus. Even if she doesn't put Jesus on top, okay? If we can go over to the next image. Here's a family of birds. And the family of birds is our family. So you have me on the end, daddy bird. And then you have Jean, you have mommy bird with a worm. about to feed the one chick that's hatched. And guess who that is? It's her. It's her. She's the youngest, but she's the first one to be hatched, okay? (laughs) Kind of gives you a clue into her headspace, right? Now, what if I were to look at this picture upon receiving it and go, baby, thank you so much, but how come you're the first one? How come you're the only one that's hatched? Shouldn't that be Kaya? Since he's the oldest, how come you're the only one? And that nest looks more like a boat than a nest. It looks, it looks like we're on an ocean, okay? If we could go to the other image, the first image, if, what if I said, baby, how can we draw our backside? And where are our arms? Where, where are the arms? How come none of us have arms? And how come Jesus and daddy are the same height as you? Why are we the same height? What if upon receiving these drawings, that's what I said there. By the way, I would never say those things. But can you imagine? If I were to say those things, what would I have done? In that very moment, I would have quenched whatever joy, whatever delight she had in giving me those things. How often we must do that with God. how often we must do that with our Father in heaven. When we focus on the flaw, when we focus on what's imperfect, when we focus and set our sights on what's broken, what's not right, what's not working, oh, how we must quench the joy and the delight of him who has placed all those things, who has given all those things to us in love. So the first way to cultivate a grateful heart is to learn to be thankful for the imperfect gifts in your life. The second is this. Learn to be thankful in times of anxiety and disappointment. Learn to be thankful in times of anxiety and disappointment. Almost sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? What do you mean be thankful in times of anxiety and disappointment? How can I? Here's a truth that I hope you will file away that you will always remember. The experience of frustration and disappointment is indispensable in the development of a grateful heart. The experience of frustration and disappointment is irreplaceable in the development of a grateful heart. You see, guys, our nature is such that 
the experience of anxiety and distress is absolutely essential to cultivating a grateful heart, a thankful heart. One author wrote, authentic gratitude comes in the midst of pain and suffering or it does not come at all. Why? Because it's the darkness that teaches us to appreciate the light. It's times of heartache and pain that teaches us to see and savor the gifts of grace that we have been given. Now the day goes by that I don't thank God for my kids. As challenging as it may be at times, raising four wild, rambunctious kids, two teenagers that are coming to their own, and as flawed as I I may be as a dad, I can't thank God enough for my kids, for the joy and the delight they are to me and Jean. And part of what makes me so thankful is the journey that led us to that. Some of you know the road that we travel to become parents. And someday I'll talk about it in greater detail. But the road we travel was a broken road. It was a very broken road. It was a road marked with suffering. We had dinner with our elder Newley and his family the other day. And I was sharing with him that there was one season in my life where I second-guessed God. where I questioned his goodness, where I said, God, I'm not sure if you're good. And it was that season where we were struggling to become parents. We experienced infertility. And in the midst of that, in in between, we had a couple of miscarriages. And there was also a failed placement of a foster child. And it was just an incredibly difficult season for us. It was just a heart-wrenching time in our lives, one of the most difficult I've ever experienced. But as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Morning came. Morning came. Not just in the form of the children that God gave us, but morning came in what we discovered about God in the night. what I came to know about God, what I came to understand about him in the midst of suffering, and it is that his grace is sufficient. That his grace is enough. God is enough. I remember this one day. I remember like it was yesterday. I was at my desk, and I was just spending time with the Lord in his word, and I was just pouring out my heart to God. I was just crying out to him, Lord, why? You know how badly I want a child. How come? What? Why are you not giving us a child? God, what have I done? I'm just pouring out my heart to God. And in that moment, I felt the Lord speaking directly to me. It's one of those times in my life where I just distinctly remember God speaking to me. There was no audible voice. But I felt the Lord saying to me, James, what if I never gave you a child? Will you still follow me? Will you still serve me? Will you still be devoted to me? And I said, yes, Lord. I will. I will serve you. I will follow you. My heart is yours. 
And God said, okay, here's four kids. <laughs> it was in the cave at Adulam as David is running for his life that he wrote Psalm 142. Where he writes, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. There is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. God, there's nobody. And then this is what he says. You, Lord, are my refuge. You, God, are my portion in the land of the living. It was in that cave, as David is running for his life, that he sees God. When everything that mattered was stripped away, when everything that mattered, wealth, power, fame, family, everything he had was taken away. And David discovered that all he had was God. And he saw that God was enough. And he puts his trust in the Lord and he praises God in the cave. It was when he was given a thorn in the flesh that Paul learned the sufficiency of Christ. When he was afflicted, When his legs were kicked out from under him, he found that all he had was Christ and he discovered that Christ was enough. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast. I will boast about my weaknesses. He says, I delight. I delight in difficulties and hardships. I thank God for them. Why? Because it's when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. What we see from David's life and Paul's life and a host of others in the Bible is that it's the experience of frustration and hardship, anxiety and disappointment. It's in those places, those things that are indispensable and irreplaceable in the cultivation of a grateful heart because it is in such times and places that God invites us to be with him and to know him. Those are invitations from God to know me. Know me, know my heart for you. Know my heart for you. Apart from all these things, apart from my gifts and my benefits, know me, know my grace, know my goodness, know my sufficiency, know me. And it's in those places that God gives us the greatest gift of all himself. Lastly, a third way to cultivate a grateful heart is by practicing the discipline of noticing. By practicing the discipline of noticing. Recall what I said earlier, that gratitude is a byproduct of a certain way of seeing. It's perceiving the good. It's perceiving the good that surrounds you. It's the result, it's the response of a heart that sees just how good God has been. G.K. Chesterton once wrote at the end of a day, here ends another day during which I've had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. Tomorrow begins another day. Why am I allowed to? I'll tell you why. Because the God who rules the universe is a good and gracious God. That's why. The discipline of noticing sees that tomorrow is not a right. Tomorrow's a gift. It sees that this day, today, is not a right. This day, this hour is a gift. All 
that we have in our lives, all that you have in your life is a gift. They're all expressions. Every good thing, every good thing you have in your life, every good thing is an expression, a demonstration of His goodness. And when you see life as a gift and not something that you're entitled to, it becomes a lot more difficult to take things for granted. It's a lot harder to take things for granted. Especially when you realize that as quickly as it is given, just as quickly it can be taken from you. Oh, I urge you today, I urge you to train your eyes to see what others do not see. Train your eyes to to see what others completely overlook. And when you do, Suddenly, the ordinary things of life, the mundane things of life, all of a sudden, they become extraordinary. They become spectacular. Will you do something for me right now? Will you take a look at your left hand? Just kind of hold it up in front of you. Go ahead and look at it. Examine it. Now, wiggle it like you're playing the piano. Notice that it works. Notice that all the ligaments and all the tendons, all the muscles, all the bones, they all work in conjunction to move your fingers. Notice that? Be thankful for that. Some of you on the fourth finger have a ring. That ring is a symbol of God's goodness to you. It's an imperfect gift, but it's a precious gift. nonetheless some of you don't have a ring on that finger my friend that too is a gift that too is a gift for in this season of life God has allowed you to serve him unencumbered some of you are wearing a watch on that wrist and it keeps ticking you notice that see that every time it ticks it's a gift Every tick is a gift from God because you didn't manufacture a single one. Tick after tick after tick is an expression of his goodness. Maybe sitting next to that hand is someone you could be thankful for. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. And you can take that hand and you can hold their hand or you could put it around their shoulder or you can... Give their knee a little squeeze. You can do that right now if you want. Now, if you're sitting next to a stranger, not a good idea, right? (laughs) Charles Spurgeon wrote, "I, I want to urge you, my dear friends, to observe the goodness of God carefully for your soul's good. There's a great difference between eyes and no eyes. Yet many have eyes and do not see. God's goodness flows before them, but they say, where is it? They breathe it in, but ask, where is it? They sit at the table and are fed upon it. They wear it upon their limbs. It is in the very beating of their hearts, and they they wonder, where is it? Do not be so blind. Let us know the Lord and consider his great goodness. So many have eyes, and yet do not see May God give us eyes that see. You know, parents have a question they ask of children. 
Every generation of parents has asked it for as long as there have been parents and children. My parents have asked it of me, and I ask it of my kids. Whenever they're given a gift, whenever anybody gives them something of benefit, I always ask them the same question. Anybody know what it is? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? And when I ask that of them, I'm looking for two simple words. Thank you. Thank you. Why do parents ask that of their kids? Kids have this tendency to be so preoccupied with the gift, whatever they're given, that they kind of forget about the giver, and so they forget to give thanks. We grown-ups aren't all that different, are we? Oh, just like little children, we get so preoccupied, so consumed with the gift that we forget the giver. And thus we forget to give thanks. Tonight ends another day during which I have had eyes, ears, hands, and the great world around me. Tomorrow begins another day. Why am I afforded to? When you go to bed tonight, having had eyes and ears and hands and the great world around you, what do you say? When God opens your eyes tomorrow, if God should open your eyes tomorrow and he gives you the gift of another day, Christian, what do you say? When you look at the cross, when you look at the cross, on which the sinless Son of God died so that you might live, where he shed his precious blood so that you might be forgiven of all your sins, Oh, child of God, what do you say? You say, I say, thank you. Thank you, God. Because not one of those things is owed to us. Every single one of those things, every single one of those things is a gift from our gracious God. to whom we owe an eternal debt of gratitude. God, we thank you. God, we thank you. Father, forgive me and forgive us. God, for all the ways we quench your joy and your delight by grumbling, by complaining, by focusing on the flaws and the imperfections the gifts that you have given to us. God, forgive us. Spirit, would you cultivate a thankful heart in us? And God, please, not just today, not just this week, 
But every day, every day, every day you, you open our eyes. Every day we are, that we are allowed to breathe and move and have our being. God, would you just give us eyes that notice? God, would you give us eyes that see? the abundance of your grace, the abundance of your blessing, God, all the benefits, the countless benefits, God, you have given us. God, keep us from forgetting it. Help us, God, to remember every every benefit, every blessing, every good you have given us. And God, you have given us so much. But Father, we thank you so much. God, of all that we are grateful for today, God, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you for your son. Thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you sent us your very son. So that he might live the life we should have lived and so that he might die the horrendous death that we should have died the wrath that should have been ours he took it all thank you Lord for the cross thank you God for the cross thank you God for the cross thank you God for your salvation thank you for the grace thank you God for the magnanimous grace the sheer grace the crazy grace God that you have bestowed upon us thank you God for your grace God, stir our hearts once again. God, for those of us that have been in a season of grumbling and complaining, focusing on all that's not right with our lives, God, would you, would just, God, give us eyes to see. Spirit of God, would you just work that in us right now, God? Even as we pray, God, would you give us eyes to see? Open the eyes of our hearts. God, that we would see the abundance. The abundance of your goodness and grace that surround us. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we move.